My name is Andrew Bustamante, and this is Everyday Espionage. that don't already know, my wife, Jihee, is also a former covert CIA intelligence officer. She was a clandestine targeting officer by trade. We met and dated and married while we were still serving undercover. It made for some interesting challenges when we decided to change names and when we decided to combine bank accounts. It's a running joke, actually, at CIA that the agency is more helpful at processing a divorce than processing a marriage because marriage certificate paperwork is so much more complicated. When Jihi and Edie Savage first met in the Middle East, I quickly realized I was the outsider, because both of these women have a passion and a talent for finding people who don't want to be found, for uncovering secrets that have been hidden from sight, and for delivering swift justice without blinking an eye. My pride in knowing them isn't because I got to work with them, it's because I know that they are the good guys. And somehow I was blessed to get to be on the same side. Now you have a story that you tell about chasing a bad guy who who killed somebody on your squad. Was that army time or was that post army time? Yeah, that was military days. Can you walk us through that story if you don't mind sharing it? Basically we had uh, one of our soldiers was killed. And I guess the person who who carried out that target on our soldier and killed him, he was a high value target to us, obviously. So He was an HVT before... He was a HVT before that anyway. So he may have had a reputation already for, for killing soldiers and yeah. taking out... Yeah, that's right. So we were just unlucky on that particular day. But so obviously one of our missions was to... Um, it was a kill or capture mission, in this particular case a kill mission, and we put together a targeting package in order to make the kill on this person. Can you explain what the targeting package is <clears throat> in unclassified terms? So a targeting package is basically um, basically profiling someone, so getting all the information on who that person is, their age, what their daily life um, or pattern of life looks like, what do they do on a daily basis, and you know, and tracking that from a time perspective as well, and who are they linked to, so you can start to see who their network is, um, because then you can ascertain how bad they are and in what you know, in what capacity as well. You can use it to justify the kill. Justify the kill. And you can also use it to actually physically locate and make the kill capture. Yeah. And I guess for me, that was the the more important part was the location. But also then, obviously, once you have been given that mission, you have to identify them. It has to be positive identification, obviously. And that's the hard point. So generally, you've got to have several different um, avenues of positive identification, whether it's through... Signals, intelligence, uh, satellite, and, you know, human intelligence. Mazent, you can get a physical biosample. Yep, um, all of those things. And so we track them to the minute. And in this particular day, uh, we were tracking this guy. We got our three positive hits on this person. He happened to be with his two IC, rode their motorbikes out into no man's land, really, which mm. was the best option for us so we didn't uh, have <laughs> no. any collateral damage. And, yeah, we hit the button and dropped the bomb. So that was a successful kill capture of a high-value target. The process by which you were able to find him and locate him 
was a series of intelligence operations along the way, correct? And many, many people working on the one operation. So you've got signals intelligence doing their job, tracking phones. You've got human intelligence making sure that they know what his whereabouts and what his movements are going to be like, who he's going to be with that day, and and kind of foreplanning, I guess, forecasting what the plan would be and the best time or day to do that. And then obviously you've got satellites or UAVs watching as well, watching the movements and tracking from the moment he comes out of his compound, who he meets with, making sure you've got the right motorbike, right person on it, which is then why you need eyes on target as well. All those sorts of things. So it's, it's a big operation, a lot of people, a lot of money, yeah, a lot of time. And this, this was a 24-hour operation. We weren't sleeping until that was done. So all hands on deck, all people watching. For days. Yep. And then what happened once he was taken out? Well, then there's a whole new process, I suppose, because then someone's going to take his role in our particular case of that particular terrorist cell. We've lost the key leader and the the second second in charge. And so then who's now going to step into that? And of course, from an analysis perspective, we've already done some mind mapping to work out who would most likely be that next person. And then, you know, you kind of start the process all over again, or you're moving on to the next high value target and monitoring that as well. And that's a piece I feel like gets overlooked is we pay a lot of pomp and circumstance in media when a HVT, when a high value target or a primary target is neutralized, but they have a legacy behind them. They have a hierarchy. Someone else is going to come in and fill their place. And oftentimes the risk is that the person who fills in after them is more violent or more cunning or more radicalized than the person that we just neutralized. That is a scary and unfortunate truth because when you find yourself in the in the grind, like where you were, every day is a new profile, a new target, a new capture kill, weeks of planning, days of sleepless nights to neutralize, and then the, the cycle starts again. You can also leverage off that moment of that kill as well and undermine whoever's looking to come in next. You can also, so we use psychological operations, you yep. know, and have these information operation, I guess, campaigns where you could be, you've, got a, you've identified someone that's most likely going to be uh, the next key leader for that group, but then you can undermine them and play them off against someone else. So then they start to have their own little internal war as well, which we've done previously before, and then they, the hope is that they kill each other off. Or, you know, <laughs> but you cause that tension and that disruption with that network either way. Absolutely. And then there are places like North Korea where you just stay out of it and you let the natural <laughs> culture of, of internal strife and internal killing work for itself the psychological apps that you were mentioning we have those obviously in the u.s as well and sometimes if information does not work fast enough oftentimes what we will do is use the actual kill operation as an opportunity to kill in a certain way that drives fear into the heart of the targets Mm -hmm. so collateral damage is an excellent example we've had examples in the u.s where the collateral damage is the other people in the car There'll be four men in a car, one of them's the HVT, will attack in a certain way with a certain type of weapon that only kills the HVT within that vehicle. And the walk-away message for the three that survive, that survive but are plastered in the dead guy's remains, is that the, that the enemy they're fighting is so powerful that this guy was able to be killed through the window of an SUV and if you want and to sit in that you seat away, yeah. and have that role, that will be you next. That will be you next, so exactly. And away. that is a fascinating, powerful way to make people just go back to 
a life of farming or whatever else they do. Yep. Absolutely interesting. What do you miss the most about your days in intelligence? Private or, or, or national? I feel like we still kind of, you live it every day. I like being over in, in those countries and making a difference. Because although you have a mission which might be of, of collection or analysis or you know, measuring human factors and things like that, you're always helping people along the way. So your job might be going there to assess security. And, for example, for us, we're trying to create a permissive environment because we want to operate in that area or we want to be able to pass through without you know, being hit by an IED mm. or being targeted in any way. You know, and there's many methods of doing that, but you can always go in with that help-first method. So establishing a rapport with the key leader of that little village or maybe it's a sheikh, maybe it's, you know, the chief of police or something like that. But it's liaison, I guess you could call it. I prefer to call it networking because you are building a rapport so that you guys can help each other achieve a mission or a goal. And in this particular case, we go in there trying to get security information on who's kind of operating in this area and uh, what's the level of security and at what time is the safest time for us to pass through. But if you don't actually ask any of those questions and you just create a relationship, mm. all that information comes out without even having to ask it because he wants to share and he wants you to come back. Right. Then you're actually achieving your mission in a much better way because he now wants to help you achieve your mission. And then you're helping him get a, a better status within his own community because now you're going to build a school in that area because he's helped you do what you needed to do and how his people then look at him. They put him up on that, that pedestal, right. which is it's, what they want. And it's the difference between cooperation and collaboration. That People will cooperate for lots of different reasons. If you go in there and you've got the biggest gun, people will cooperate with you, but they're going to stop short of collaboration. They're never going to proactively try to solve problems for you. Whereas with your example, you build a relationship with some tribal leader or some sheikh that's part of a hierarchy of competition to see whose family name will, will continue to run the, the tribe, and you turn them into a willing collaborator through this process of building rapport. Yep. And that's something that you got to do on an international level with people that you would have never met otherwise when you were actively executing intelligence operations. There's also some really good things that you, you get to do when you are creating permissive environments or developing relationships because building a school, for example, mm. you're not only giving to that shake, you're giving to a community of people. It's a lot of people that you're impacting. That's kids, that's the next generation that are now being educated and they may have never had a school in there before, but now they're put on the radar and you know will get some government support perhaps as well. So it's just it can change in such a big way. Or we've developed, you know, locations where we've created like a sewing school for women to give them some sort of a, a trade a trade so that they can, you know, earn a living. Whilst doing all this, again, you're building relationships and potentially you now have sources or potential sources to collect information moving and, forward. And they're not just short-term sources either. The source, the seven-year-old who goes to school and knows that the only reason she went to school was because the Australians helped her shake build a school eventually becomes a 27-year-old woman who may still be fond and loyal to the Australian government. Yep. I think that that's another thing that Hollywood misses out on. There's a lifespan to an asset, a lifespan to an intelligence operation. It doesn't always boil down to a nice two-hour movie beginning and ending with a source that has a, a minor supporting role. Mm -hmm. These sources come back 
multiple times. Generations come back. My father was a source for you, and now my father is dead, and he always spoke so fondly of his time with you. What can I do to serve? And motivations are different. You know, people always talk, and Hollywood always says, it's either revenge or for money. Right. But it's not always that. Not always. Yeah. Those aren't even the more powerful ones. No. So, as you say, sometimes you've just impacted in a good way uh, to somebody. Now, you mentioned earlier that you feel like you still live it every day. Can you expand on what makes you feel like you're still living it every day? I guess it's it's that helping and developing, I guess, developing networks. For me, my whole life is about networking. And it's not a targeted networking system anymore. Now it's just I like learning from people. I like to surround myself with people that inspire me. Again, maybe it's selfish because I actually just want to be the best version of myself. And so if I, if I find people that inspire me or just give me a different outlook, I'm learning. You know, I'm learning every day. And now that I work in business as well and I mentor people, I want to learn different outlooks and I want to see different perceptions and how other people view the world and view, view situations because how can I make them see it in a slightly different light that will make life easier for them? Absolutely. So it's, I feel like intelligence and gaining information and even when you're doing analysis, it's collecting a whole heap of information and, and putting a story together. I still do the same thing. I'm still collecting a whole heap of different information from different people, different sources, and then putting, I guess, putting the puzzle together for somebody that resonates with them, though. So if I put a puzzle together or you have a problem and someone else has a problem, the solution is going to be different for both of you because right. it has to resonate to your world, whatever factors are, you know, or specifics are pertinent to your situation. So... We still do that every day. Yeah, absolutely. And what's interesting is that you talk about networking and you talk about the process of learning and seeing different perspectives as if it's a passive process, but it's not. What you're doing is actually a very active process. It's the people who are not receptive, not opening themselves up to new perspectives. They're taking a more passive approach because the human mind, the default approach is to block out information that is contrary to what your worldview is, where you are actively challenging your mind every day to take on new perspectives. And you may say it's so that you can help two people solve a problem, but you also realize that permanently from that day forward, you are seeing one problem two different ways. Hmm, that's true. Well, it's, it's interesting to me, especially in the business world, because the people who often succeed the most in business are the people who can take a problem and solve it in a way that other people haven't tried to solve it. And people that are open to change. Absolutely. So if someone's not willing to accept advice or see things in a different way, they will never improve that process, that system, that method, or that issue in their life. And it goes back to, I guess, whether or not they even want to improve. And there are some people like you and I who constantly want to evolve and constantly want to improve. We are willing to take a risk mm -hmm. and fail or take a loss in the pursuit of improvement. And there are some people who reach a place where it works and they're not willing to take a risk for loss or embarrassment. So they just keep doing the same thing without realizing there could be a better way. I feel like it's pride and embarrassment seems to be the common, the common one. That's uh, across multiple oceans between you and I. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> Absolutely. Every great mission takes resources. Time, energy, money. When Edie Savage was hunting terrorists, sometimes she used missiles... And sometimes she built schools. It's no different in everyday life. Achievement is a mix of taking some people down 
and lifting other people up. The key is in the benefit at the end. Not the benefit to you, but the mutual benefit that you bring those on mission with you. I have seen the impact that hospitals and clinics and schools have on the fight against terrorism. And unlike a handsome spy hero with an automatic weapon or some well-groomed beard, the greatest missions continue to win long after the scene ends. What are you trying to accomplish? And what is the mutual benefit that you are bringing to others on your path? Are you making jobs? Are you helping fellow students? Are you sharing your knowledge and your skills? Are you expanding other people's networks? Real-life spy missions don't succeed after a trail of dead bodies. They succeed because they are hidden by the community that they build. That is Everyday Espionage. Everyday Espionage is dedicated to one thing, educating everyday people. I know that not everyone will listen, but those who listen will learn. If you learned something new today, click subscribe, review, and share the podcast with a friend. Find me on social media at Everyday Spy or on my website, everydayspy.com. If you are up for a special challenge, visit everydayspy.com forward slash operations and join me for an authentic spy training mission. And above all else, remember that knowledge is freedom.